All right. As Rob mentioned, we are in week four of our vision series, and I want to take a minute to just kind of catch you up on what we've been talking about, because you may or may not have been at all four weeks, and even if you were here, you might not have caught the whole sense of what it is that we feel like God is doing in this season. Uh, as we look at um, the idea of vision, it's, it can be a weird concept, but ultimately we go to the Lord with our hands open, and we say, what do you have for us today? Now, there are the, not today as in today, February, whatever date we are, but as in this era, this season, this moment in time, this Kairos, Lord, what do you have for us in this day? And we open our hands up to him. Now, we know that he's not going to take us away from the all-time, ever-present call to make disciples. It's not different than that. Like, okay, I'm going to hold off on disciple-making for a little while and ask you to do something different. Like, that's going to be all the time. But as the Lord shines a spotlight on certain things, we want to be responsive to that. And so we ask the questions. And the answers that we got, um, in a lot of ways, are very similar to things that we planted the church on. But that's, been a, that's an important thing. As we look around Anthem Church, we have a number of new faces, and we feel like the Lord is asking us to lay again the foundations of why we're here, so that we're all on the same page of what we believe God is asking us to do. So ultimately, our dream is to be a church that changes our city for the name of Jesus and that changes the nations for the name of Jesus. And that might sound grandiose to think, oh yeah, let's change the nations. But honestly, we're a 500-person church in Thousand Oaks, California. And in just a few years, those are the relationships that we've been able to build that are working into countries around the world. And we get to stir and support and encourage and be a part of the work that God's doing. And that's just a sampling. There's a ton more that's happening that is so exciting. And so while it might sound grandiose to say we want to be a church that changes the nations, it is legitimate. It is part of our calling as Anthem Church to go beyond our scope and to reach people around the world with the name of Jesus. So there's a giant if. If we want to be a church that changes our city for the name of Jesus and that changes the nations for the name of Jesus, then there are certain things that we as the church, as Rob was saying, we are the people, we are the church. So if we are going to change this city, then we have a part to play in that. And when I say we, I mean all the people that would say, I'm Anthem Church. And we try and keep you from saying, I go to Anthem Church, because there's no such thing. We try and adopt the language of I am Anthem Church, which might sound foreign to you, but that's, that would be the biblical understanding of what the church is, is it is the people that gather. So those that would say, yeah, I'm Anthem Church, well, we're asking you to step into something. And those that would not yet say that you're Anthem Church, we're trying to show you this is what it means to be Anthem Church. So if you do, if there's something about this, if you are tasting and seeing that the Lord is good and you want to dive in, this is what it means to dive in. This is what it means to be Anthem Church. So we set out on a, on a journey, the four weeks. The first week was to be filled with and dependent on the Holy Spirit. If we're going to be a church that changes the city for the name of Jesus and changes the nations for the name of Jesus, we have to be people and then corporately a church that is filled by and dependent on the Spirit of God. Even Jesus himself, I won't reteach the message, but Jesus himself said, go make disciples, but don't even try it until you've received the gift from the Father. And that gift was the Holy Spirit. You need the Holy Spirit, Jesus would say to his own disciples, to do what I'm asking you to do. 
And so as a church, we want to cultivate a dependence on the Holy Spirit. The second week, my dad was up here, Steve Larson, and he taught on intentional transformational relationships. If we're going to be a city-changing church, it's not enough to be Christians in the same space together. So the picture of iron sharpening iron, you might have heard that proverb before. As iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. Iron and iron standing next to each other in the same room are not sharpening each other. It actually comes to intentional, like, like honestly, it, it is friction. It's difficulty. It's striking. And so when, when the author of Hebrews writes and says, stir one another up to love and good works, the, the word is agitate. That's the same word with that iron sharpening iron. It's designed to like, like clang into each other. And that's how we grow each other. It's more intentional to be transformational rather than less. It's not enough to just be in the same space. You approach it with One, how can I intent, intentionally transform the people around me? And two, how can I walk in humility and be transformed by the people that are pouring into me? Week three, last week, we talked about the foundations of the apostles and prophets. That's Ephesians 2.20. And specifically, what does it mean that we are an apostolic church, a sent people? That word is the same, sent and apostle, same word. So if you remember the three words, one was sent, one was mission, one was apostle. They're all the exact same word. Okay, so the idea of being a people that are sent, we want to submit ourselves to this mission that God has us on, this sentness, and say we are an apostolic people. We operate with purpose. If we're going to be a church that changes our city and changes the nations, we have to understand that each and every one of us has been sent by God into this world. The only time you know your assignment is done is when you die physically. That's when you know that your assignment is complete. And even then, the Lord may resurrect you and say, I've got more for you. We'll never know. (laughs) But that's the end of your assignment. Until that moment, you're here on assignment. And that assignment is the mission of God, to see the world come alive in Jesus. The core passage that we've been using to walk through all of this is Ephesians 2, 18 through 22. If you have your Bibles, you can go there. Ephesians 2, 18 through 22. And this was mostly just as we were hearing these different things from the Lord, I, I spent time in this passage and thought all of these are represented here. And I, want, I wanted to have like an anchor passage that we could just walk through together. And this passage says this. It says, for through him, that's Jesus, we both, Jew, Gentile, have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you, church, are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. That's this familial language of the church. We are members of God's household. Built on the foundations, this is talking about the household, the church, built on the foundations of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, so in Jesus, the whole structure being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And today, this fourth week of our vision series, we're going to be talking about what it means to be a church built with Jesus Christ as the cornerstone. What does that mean? What does that look like? And how do we live accordingly? So a little bit about this. 
The idea of Jesus being our cornerstone means that when we build a church, when we consider the things that are true about a church, we look to what the scriptures teach us. And what Paul's writing in Ephesians is he says the only church that's going to have the presence of God is the church that's built with Jesus Christ as the cornerstone. So any church that's out there that's trying to, to build on something else other than Jesus well, it's not, a, it's not a dwelling place for the presence of God, according to Ephesians 2. So that, that picture of the true church, and you could go big C church, global, you could go individual, local church. The true church is a church that's built with Jesus Christ as the cornerstone. Now, the picture of the cornerstone, we don't really do a lot of construction this way, but if you had the cornerstone there, I mean, they were, for the bigger the building, the bigger the cornerstone. But the cornerstone was always crucial. You take the cornerstone away and the entire building crumbles. It can't hold up apart from the cornerstone. But the more substantial the cornerstone, the more substantial the building. And so the idea of establishing Jesus as our cornerstone means that we live with him as central to everything that we do. And you might think, okay, so what, is that, what does that look like? And there are three main things and we'll talk, these are the three things we're going to talk about today. And they kind of come out of this passage in John 14, 6, where Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me or but by me. The way, the truth, and the life. Okay, so the first thing is a church that's built with Jesus as the cornerstone practices the way of Jesus. I am the way, Jesus says. Jesus actually shows us, and we'll t we talked about this in Romans 5, he is the prototypical human being. What does a human being look like without sin? The answer is Jesus. And so if we're trying to pattern our lives after righteousness, to go after the heart of God, to be people that are godly, and we pursue Christ's likeness, and we practice the way of Jesus... We learn to pray as Jesus prayed. We learn to depend on the Spirit as Jesus depended on the Spirit. We learn to make disciples as Jesus made disciples. We learn to rest in the power and presence of the Most High God as Jesus rested in the power and presence of the Most High God. And so we cultivate a life that is shaped after the person of Jesus. Jesus said, I'm the way. And Jesus also said, I am the truth. And that means that we preach Jesus. We proclaim Jesus as the central idea of truth in this world, meaning there is no truth that does not have its source in Jesus. And you might be thinking, well, like, what about space? And it's like, okay, well, we would look at Jesus as the creator and science and philosophy and human relationships and emotions. All of those find their source in Jesus, the creator. When we look at the problems of humanity, this was the whole concept of modernity that started in the 1800s. The idea was, okay, God is dead. Nietzsche declared it. Let's be humans and fix this world without this idea of God. And they tried. And then post-modernity was born because they failed. The reality is the world tried life without God. Do you know the number of true atheists is down to like sub 5% globally in the world? Very few people don't believe in a higher power. Minimal. 
A lot of our apologetics are still based on getting atheists to believe that God exists. The reality is we are winning that war because honestly, people look around and they're like, yeah, yeah, we can't explain all this. Science finds its end and then there's more. So the sheer volume of people on this planet that acknowledge a spiritual reality to the world is unbelievably the majority, way beyond a true atheist. So the picture of what we're here to do is to show how all things find their source in Jesus. So we preach Jesus. Uh, There's a great moment in Luke chapter 24. Jesus is walking on the road to Emmaus. It's after he rose from the dead. If you're not familiar with the story, you should read the whole book of Luke and then land in Luke 24. It's the last chapter. And in that last chapter, Jesus is walking on the road to Emmaus with two disciples, but they don't recognize him. Jesus was dead and buried. And they're walking with a guy that they don't recognize. Now, some of this we believe to be supernatural. Their eyes were were dimmed to the presence of Jesus, but also they weren't expecting to see a resurrected Savior. They were just walking with a stranger on the road to Emmaus. And Jesus asks them about what's going on. They're like, haven't you heard? (laughs) The whole world is talking about this guy that died on the cross. And Jesus interacts with them a little bit, but then he actually goes on And it it says that he uses the entire scriptures to tell the story of himself. So even when we preach the Old Testament, we preach Jesus. You don't read Exodus as like, well, that was before Jesus. You read Exodus as the story that points to Jesus. You read Ruth as the story that points to Jesus. You read Malachi as the story that points to Jesus because that's how Jesus gave us those stories. These are designed to point to me. So he's the way. He's the truth. We preach Jesus. And a church that's built on Jesus as the cornerstone also understands that Jesus is the life. And this is where we're going to spend the bulk of our time today, that Jesus is our life. In 1948, a man named A.W. Tozer published a book called The Pursuit of God. A.W. Tozer's first name was Aiden, which is a cool name today, but in 1948, he went by A.W. Uh, So he publishes this book called The Pursuit of God. It's an incredible book. It's actually a book that I can highly recommend. It's $7 on Kindle, $9 on paperback. You should order it. Stat. Okay. A couple of quotes are going to come from this book because it is a phenomenal book. He wrote this in 1948. How tragic that we in this dark day have had our seeking done for us by our teachers. Everything is made to center upon the initial act of accepting Christ, a term incidentally which is not found in the Bible. And we are not expected thereafter to crave any further revelation of God to our souls. We have been snared in the coils of a spurious logic which insists that if we have found him, we need no more seek him. You have an opportunity Uh, to end the advancement of the gospel by being a lifeless Christian. There's nothing that will suck the life out of people wanting to follow Jesus more than seeing a Christian who is not ignited with the passion of God's presence in their life. It's something to think deeply on. Because here's the thing, 
What do we have to offer the world? Like, let's just say we go out there and we say, look, become a Christian and your marriage gets a little bit better. I mean, maybe it's just, you know, and I know the numbers of like divorce and non-divorce and everybody's like, yeah, but that includes all these crazy people that say they're Christians and aren't, whatever. But let's just say the message to the world is become a Christian and you can have a, an improved marriage. And somebody looks at, at you and you're like, okay, so you're telling me I could have like a minimally improved marriage, call it 15% better, 20% better than if I don't. But I have to give up my Sunday mornings. I have to give 10% of my income. I have to be in a small group and be vulnerable with a bunch of strangers. And I have to vote myself to like something else that's not me. Yeah, pass. Okay, let's say it's like, okay, well, maybe not your marriage, but let's just say uh, you can have you, an improved morality. If you, if you come to church, if you come to Christ, your general moral compass increases. You're not stealing from people. You're not cussing as much. You're not uh, as angry as a person. Like the general morality of who you are, you, you improve. You're a better person. All the same things. It's like, well, I can, you know, I can listen to Jordan Peterson. I can, uh, I can find some people online. I can, I can follow some people on TikTok. I can become a better person. I don't need Jesus. I can actually improve. It's, it's everything out there is designed to help me improve myself. And so let's just say I can be 10 to 15% better by the power of the Spirit. But again, I have to give up all those things. I'm fine. Pass. Our sales pitch to the world is not, life would just be a little bit better if you gave your life to Jesus. But here's the thing, is if you live your life just sort of thumbing along, kicking the can around, honestly, doing nothing. Don't care that much about church. Don't care that much about following the Spirit. Not that interested in being a radically transformed presence for the kingdom of God. You're doing more damage for the kingdom of God than you could possibly imagine. Because the world will look at you and just be like, yeah, I'm fine. I don't need that. Something's got to stir up in us. Something's got to ignite in us to be the people of God. Jesus said, I'm the way, I'm the truth, and I'm the life. What does alive mean to you? It's that thing that you would look at and just be like, dang, that, that is life. And how do we get that? Do we have any engaged couples in the room? Any, any couples that are engaged? Sorry if you mean to make an announcement. Okay, that's fine. <laughs> All right. No engaged couples. For those of you that are married, you remember that engagement period of what it was like to get ready to get married. There was a deep and profound love for each other, an anticipation of marriage. Uh, things were stirring up to actually get married. It was an exciting season. You couldn't wait for the moment where, like, you could watch a movie and then you didn't have to leave each other's homes. You could stay in the same house. That was, like, my biggest dream about getting married was just, like, what about that day when we don't have to leave each other at the end of the night? It's just, we're together. I couldn't wait. There's so much anticipation. 
Now, then the wedding day comes, and it's this culmination of your dating relationship, your engagement, this beautiful moment. The vows are, are significant. The whole crowd is there witnessing this moment. Now, let's just say from that point forward, you did nothing to cultivate the love in your marriage. You just expected that all of what took place in your engagement was sufficient, and then the vows themselves were this culmination of your experience. But then, then it was like, okay, let's just hit the coast button and roll forward and see what happens. What happens to those marriages? Very, very, very quickly, right? Like, if you're not actively cultivating your love for your spouse, the way the world works is other stuff starts to build up, take desirous places in your heart, fill your mind. And it's not even always another woman or another man. It's just stuff. It's just life. You kind of fall in love with being your own person. You fall in love with having your own space. You fall in love with everything other than your spouse. If you're not cultivating a love for your spouse, you drift. It's just nature. We, we aren't instinctively good at being married to each other. Now think about your life with God. For so many of us, we get to this point of saying yes to Jesus. And from that point forward, I don't know what our expectation is, but some of us might cultivate a little bit of a, a love for God. But when we don't, what happens is we start to grow distant in our love and our affection from this God who saved us from that covenant moment. It's very, the, the Bible uses marriage and our covenant relationship with God all the time. In fact, it's why marriage exists. Marriage exists for the purpose of teaching you about a covenant relationship with God. So this picture is given of cultivating a passionate and deep and profound love for God. And if we're not, it's not our nature to just explode with love for God on command. It's very similar to a marriage. And so what happens is if we don't, as a people, cultivate our love for God over the course of time, our love grows cold. We start to get distracted. We start to think about other things and fall in love with other, I don't want to say other gods, because most of us are like, I don't worship other gods. But we do fall in love with other idols. We fall in love with other things. So this is another Tozer quote. Tozer says, I want deliberately to encourage this mighty longing after God. The lack of it has brought us to our present low estate. The stiff and wooden quality about our religious lives is a result of our lack of holy desire. Complacency is a deadly foe of all spiritual growth. Acute desire must be present or there will be no manifestation of Christ to his people. He waits to be wanted. Too bad that with many of us, he waits so long, so very long in vain. Okay, one of the things that I'm hoping to do is just to kind of stir this like belly ache. Okay, so what? Most of us don't get married to God saying, I want to fall out of love with God. Let's just use that covenant relationship, that idea of coming to Jesus, getting baptized into our faith. Most of us don't get to that 
powerful moment only to say, now I can't wait to find something else to fill my mind, to worship something else with my time, energy, and money, to give all of my affection to my kids and their sports, to give all of my affection to fantasy football, to give all of my affection to my career and everything that comes with it. Most of us aren't anticipating that moment and then saying, what else can I find to give myself to? We come to Jesus saying, you have my everything. It's just like our wedding vows. You have my everything. So as people, this is not a message of shame if you've fallen out of love with God. That is your nature. It is honestly, it's the the way of the world, the way of the enemy, and the way of your own flesh are to take you away from a love for God. That's why Martin Luther called those the three enemies of the Christian faith. They're taking you away from a love for God. And so as people, we have to say, we got to fight this battle. I want to choose to love God. And in order to do that, there are things that we need to do to cultivate a deep love for God. And so if you are a follower of Jesus, it's not a thing of shame to say, I have to cultivate a love for Jesus. It is a normal and real human reality that each and every one of us needs to actively cultivate our love for Jesus, just like you would your spouse. That doesn't mean that you love your spouse less if you have to think about cultivating a love for them. I just want to encourage you in that. Married couples, it doesn't mean you love your spouse less if you have to plan times of dates and intimacy and all of that. Some of us just hope for this spontaneous fairy tale life to just come together and it'll be beautiful and perfect, and it's a lie. As human beings, the enemy would want nothing more than to take us running in other directions, and we have to choose intentionally covenant with our wife, for those of us that are men, for our husband, for those of us that are women, and with our God, for those of us that are followers of Jesus. So how do we cultivate a relationship with God? Three things. And these are, this isn't formula. I'm not trying to give you the religious formula to avoid religion. This is... Practices that we can put into place in our lives to cultivate a deep love for God. The first thing is to lessen the grip on the world. Lessen the grip on the world. John tells his readers this in 1 John 2, 15 through 17. Do not love the things of the world. Do, I'm sorry, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, you could read that and say, if I love the world, God doesn't love me. That's not what that passage is saying. It's saying, if you love the world, you can't also simultaneously have a love for the Father. For 2,000 years, Christians have been trying to find the pathway to love two things at once. I want to love the world, and I want to love God. We've been trying really hard to walk that tightrope. And every single time we fail. Every single time. And so John, knowing this, way before any of us tried to love the world and God at the same time, said, don't try. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, you can't also love the Father. It's like Jesus teaching, you can't serve two masters. You're either going to love the one and hate the other, or you're going to love that one and hate the one. You can't split your affections. It doesn't work. The 
So to fall deeply in love with God, the first thing that we need to do is lessen the grip of the world in our hearts. And that takes intentionality. This takes purpose to peel our affections off of the things of the world. Willie, could I share a bit of your story? Okay. Uh, Willie was a big wave surfer back in Hawaii a long time ago. Uh, Really excellent. Who'd you live with? What was the the big name surfer's name? Pretty much all of them. Oh, yeah. Okay. All right. All the big name surfers from Endless Summer in the 60s and the 70s. Willie lived with him in a commune in Hawaii in a previous life. As he came to Jesus, uh, one of the things that the Lord asked him to lay down was surfing. And what was the duration? 13 years? Yeah. 13 years. Well, he didn't go out in the water. Now, I, I tell you this story because it's one of those things. Is surfing a sin? No. No. But one of the things that can happen in our hearts is so quickly these things that are fine, they're just fine, can become something that we're holding on so tightly to that the Lord comes to us and says, hey, I need that thing. And we're like, yeah, I know. I'm good. I can love you and this thing. This is the entire purpose of the story, if you've ever heard it, back in Genesis of Abraham being asked to sacrifice Isaac. If you've ever read that story and just be like, whoa, child sacrifice, Yahweh, what are we doing here? This is not your story. That's the other gods, not you. But God came to Abraham. Did I say Moses? God came to Abraham and said, I need you to give me Isaac. The son of promise, the son that was going to fulfill the covenant that God had made with Abraham, the son that he had been waiting for for a hundred years. And God says, I need him. Bring him up on the hill. Bring your fire. Bring your knife. We're going to do this thing. One of the things that happens in our lives is that we come to Jesus, and then the second we come to Jesus, Satan's going to present us other things to fall in love with. Our flesh is going to run back to the things that we love so dearly throughout our lives. And the world, just the world being the world, is going to present you with opportunities. It's just the nature of the world. It's not, in, I mean, it's inherently evil, but it's not inherently evil like as in the world is and of itself Satan. It's just that it's not God. And it's going to often come to you and say, there's this thing that you could do and you could give your time and energy to, and it'll take some money and it'll, yeah, it'll take away from your prayer life. It'll take away from your mission. It'll take away from your generosity, but it's fine. And you're going to say, okay. you want to be a person that loves God, part of the practice of a Christian that's going to cultivate a love for God is going to be a person that puts all things on the table and says, God, these are yours. I'll keep what you say keep, and I'll throw away what you say throw away. I got married at 21. I was pretty young. Uh, Kristen was even younger. She was 20, but somehow she was mature as a 35-year-old, and I was as mature as a 14-year-old, but that's okay. It happens sometimes. A couple of things that defined my life when I got married, uh, fantasy baseball, counter-strike, and poker with my friends. Okay, just giving you a sense of the maturity level of the 21-year-old that got married to Kristen. Um, 
Try, uh, you guys are like, Counter-Strike? What year was it? Yeah, 1990, no, 2001. 2001. Uh, as I stepped into marriage, there was part of me that was just like, well, this is the best. I'm going to be able to do all the fun things that husbands and wives get to do and Counter-Strike fantasy baseball and poker with my friends. It'll just be great. It's the best case scenario for me. And I stepped into this and uh, very quickly found out that marriage creates a different sen- sense of priority. And um, if I could either respond to that sense of priority or I could reject that sense of priority and in rejecting it, uh, that would come at a cost. The cost of our relationship being healthy, the cost of intimacy, the cost of togetherness, the cost of mission, the cost of a lot of things. I mean, you stay up till 2 a.m. playing Counter-Strike, for even one week into marriage and you realize very quickly that this doesn't cultivate a love for your spouse. It actually takes you into a very different place in a lot of ways. And I'm going to, this is still one of the more embarrassing stats of my life, but it took me seven years to figure out uh, in marriage the things that needed to, to lay down in order for me to be able to devote myself to my wife. I thank God for her patience with me. I was immature, full of folly if I looked through Proverbs. And I love Jesus, guys. I was a youth pastor. I love Jesus. I led mission trips. I led worship. I preached the gospel all the time. And I was an immature fool when it came to being a husband. But God was patient with me, and he showed me things that needed to be let go of in my life. And to this day, I'm I'm so grateful for God's hand just guiding me through this process of saying, no, I just, the the things of this world don't even compare to the life that I have for you. And he lessened my grip on the world. And it was intentional. I had to go to him and say, I I just, Kristen and I are doing this all the time, and I don't want that. And he's like, okay, you dumb goon. There's a couple of things you got to do here. And I had to submit myself to the things that he said, all right, here are the things to peel off your love for and lay down. Another quote from Tozer. He says, the man who has God for his treasure, and you can read woman into this, the man or woman who has God for his treasure has all things in one. Many ordinary treasures may be denied him. You may not play poker with your friends. I'm just throwing that out there. You may be. Or if he is allowed to have them, the enjoyment of them will be so tempered that they will never be necessary to his happiness. Or if he must see them go one after one, he will scarcely feel a sense of loss for having the source of all things he has in one, all satisfaction, all pleasure, all delight. Whatever he may lose, he has actually lost nothing. For he now has it all in one, and he has it purely, legitimately, and forever. Okay, so the Lord peels your affections for the things of this world off of your life. If you submit them to him, one thing you start to realize is that those things don't even compare to the joy, the surpassing joy of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. I don't miss Counter-Strike. I don't long for the day that I get to stay up till 2 a.m. and play a video game. I rejoice 
in the life that I have with my spouse and the intimacy and the closeness. We just did 22 years. January 6th was our 22-year anniversary. I've never loved my wife more, and the Lord has stirred me to great affection as things of this world have fallen away, and my love and devotion to my wife has increased. My joy has increased exponentially, and I can look back on my journals from 20 years ago and think, what a fool I was to have been so deceived by a world that I I want nothing to do with that life. And I want everything to do with my spouse. And I can walk that same trajectory with my God. As he has peeled things away from my heart, these distractions, these loves, these things for the world that take my time and energy away from him, as he has peeled those loves away and presented himself, I don't miss those things. That doesn't mean that my flesh doesn't run back to them from time to time or that the world presents them or Satan loves to just sprinkle them in. It is a discipline to refuse those things of the world. But when we do it, it is replaced by the the greatest joy of knowing God. So that's number one, lessening the grip that the world has on our hearts. Number two, submit to the Spirit. Submit to the Spirit. So first, If you want to fall deeply in love with God, you lessen your grip on the things of the world, and that's going to take intentionality. Maybe you write down the things that you love, and you say, Lord, these are yours. Whatever the practice is, go to your community, say, here are the things of the world that I love, that I have affection for. Help me discern what I need to get rid of. So there you go. Number two, submit to the Spirit. This is Romans chapter 8, and I know we'll get there in a little bit, but this is Romans 8, starting in verse 20. Ooh, I should have had that written down. Starting in verse 27, I believe. 26. All right. It says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Okay, a little bit of translation. We have the Spirit, and the Spirit helps us worship. And one of the things that the Spirit does is he worships and prays for us in accordance with the will of God. So what I want you to hear from this is that 100% of the time, the Spirit is working in us according to the will of God. The Spirit always leads you into the will of God. There's never a time that the Spirit leads you away from the will of God, away from the heart of God, away from a deep love for God. The Spirit always, 100% of the time, every time you submit to the Spirit, takes you into a greater love for God. This is why Paul can say with such confidence, I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Under no circumstances does a person walking by the Spirit gratify the desires of the flesh because the things of the Spirit are contrary to the things of the flesh. He takes you a different direction and helps you run at the person and presence of God. So when you submit to the Spirit, He takes you into this place of deep and profound love for God and worship worship of him every time. Amen. Every time. Every time. So think about this. 
You want to fall deeply in love with God. You want to cultivate a love for him. You want to stir your affections for him. You submit to the Holy Spirit and say, Holy Spirit, would you guide my heart right now? What is the Spirit going to do? I'm going to kick the doors down and lead you into a profound intimacy with God the Father. For by him we have access. It's Ephesians 2, chapter 8, verse 18. By him, Jesus, we have access in one spirit to the Father. The Spirit ushers us in. Philippians 3, 3 says we worship by the Holy Spirit. If you were to show up here on a Sunday morning and say, Holy Spirit, I want to be a worshiper who worships in spirit and truth, and the Spirit leads you into worship, it's not just that you sing better or louder, it's that you are a in-your-inner-person worshiper that is exalting the presence of God. And you know what the world sees when they see that? They see fire! They see love! And they see somebody that's so alive that they can't not run at the finished work of Jesus because they see life and they want life. Nobody wants to be dead. Nobody wants to go through their life feeling like they have nothing to live for. People want fullness. They want God. And you have God and you demonstrate it and they run at him. But they don't run at you when you smell just like the world. And when you look just like the world, when you're trying to walk this tightrope of, maybe I can be all about my career and all about God, or maybe I can be all about my kids and all about God. Now, the kids one is sensitive. Because you're like, well, a good Christian dad is going to be all about his kids. It's noble. It's right. A good Christian dad is going to be all about Jesus, 100% fully devoted under no circumstances does anything get in the way of being fully devoted to Jesus Christ. That's what a good Christian dad is going to do. And then that is going to spill out into a love for your kids. All of a sudden, you're not coaching soccer for the glory of your kids. You're coaching soccer for the glory of God, and you're this living, breathing testimony of the goodness of God on the ASO fields. All of a sudden, you're not with your kids trying to live vicariously through them and give them the life you never had. You are letting the anointing oil of the Holy Spirit pour out on you, and you can say, my cup runneth over, and your kids get the blessing of you being filled by the Spirit of God. That's being a Christian dad. You're not absent. You don't neglect your kids. You're not away from them so that you can worship. Shut up, kids. I'm praying. (laughs) But it's from this place of being fully devoted to Jesus and filled by his spirit that actually your kids get the goodness of God. That's when they taste and see that the Lord is good. You want your kids when they're 27 to look back and not say, dang, my dad was a good dad. That's what most of us are trying for. We want them, by the time they're 27, to look back and say, my dad was a good dad. He camped with me, coached my teams, he gave me money every time I asked. (laughs) You want your kids to look back and say, my dad loved Jesus. It was in everything he did. 
There was even a time where I fell out of love with Jesus, and my dad's love for Jesus was so real. I just, I can't get away from it. I can't shake it. Okay, so submit yourself to the Spirit, and every time he leads you into the presence of God. I got to hurry up. These are going way too long. <laughs> All right, last one. This one's courtesy of my mom. I called my parents. My dad was on the way to the airport. My dad's in Nepal right now. You can be praying for him. And I called my parents, and they were 14 minutes away from LAX. And I said, cultivating a deep love for God, discuss. And they did not stop talking for 14 minutes until my dad got out of the car and to go in. And my mom was reflecting on this phrase, I will, in the Psalms. The phrase, I will, is used 180 times in the book of Psalms alone. And so the third thing, first one, lessen the grip of the world on your life. Second one, submit to the Spirit. Third one is determine to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Choose it. 180 times the psalmist say, I will. Here are a couple of examples. I will tell. I will make. I will bow down. I will give to the Lord the thanks due to his righteousness. I will be glad. I will sing to the Lord. I will praise you. I will bless you, Lord. It's this intent. It's this declaration of what I am going to do with my life. And part of us needs to say, I will love my God today. And then tomorrow when we wake up, we say, I will bless the Lord with my mouth. And then the next day we say, I will give thanks to the Lord for he is good. And the next day we say, I will praise the Lord my God and on and on and on. Guys, for a person that is lessening their grip of the world on their life, for a person that is submitting to the spirit of God and for a person that is determining determining to love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, and mind. That is a person that is cultivating a deep love for Jesus. And here's what happens. The world notices. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And of those, a lot of people try and live the way and show people, if we live like Jesus, then you should live like Jesus too. And, and the danger of that is a little bit of legalism. People can start to pursue the behaviors without maybe understanding more than that. I am the truth. A lot of us have tried to establish the truth, and we, we go at the world with truth. And we try and hit them over the head with truth sometimes. And we try and win them to the gospel with truth sometimes. But the reality is, we're in a world right now that's like, okay, that's a fine truth for you. But I'm living a completely different truth, bro. And we try and go at them with truth, and what we end up doing is just bludgeoning people and actually driving many of them away from the gospel. I'm not saying we shy, shy away from truth, by the way. But prophetically, in the Lord, when Jesus says, I am the life, I think that's what our world needs right now. People are tired of politics. They're tired of racial injustice. They're tired of gun violence. They're tired of fentanyl overdoses. They're tired of suicides. They're tired of depression and anxiety. They're tired of the economy being so unpredictable that they don't know what to do with their money. They're tired of trying to figure out how to raise kids in a broken world like this. And people are exhausted and giving up. Study after study after study right now is leading us to believe that society is pretty uninterested in the future. What do you have to offer 
a world that is falling out of love with life, you have life. You have life to give. And if we're going to be a church that changes our city, we've got to be alive. It's got to be seen in everything that we do. It's got to be seen in our worship. It's got to be seen in our prayer lives. It's got to be seen in our fellowship. It's got to be seen in our mission. Life has to be visible, but I don't want to just try and manufacture it. I'm not asking you to slap a smile on your face and say, life is good, Jesus is good, I'm too blessed to be stressed, and I'm just going to go for it. That's John Mulaney, by the way, too blessed to be stressed. I'm asking us to be a church that comes alive in Jesus, and it's available, but it takes intentionality. In the same way that if this was like a marriage thing, I would encourage our husbands and wives to come alive in their marriage, and it's available, but it takes intentionality. I would say a lot of the same words, because that marriage picture and our pursuit of God, they they overlap a lot. But this is about the pursuit of God, and I want to challenge you to be a person that cultivates a deep love for God. Father, we ask you to lead us in this. By your spirit, in community, on mission, would we be a people that love you with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, and with all our strengths. Lord, lead us to this love that you have made for us. Lord, I even pray right now that you would stir Stir this church, stir us to movement, stir us to love, Lord, open us up right now to a love that is unfamiliar to us, not because we've never loved before, but because it's more than we've ever known before. Lord, teach us how to love you. It's in your name we pray, amen.